evidence and answers. Is there such a thing as truth? The majority of the culture says no. How can we engage a person who does not even believe truth exists? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, we begin with message three, taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii each year. Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Let's tune in as Greg Kokel presents The Fallacies of Relativism, one of the most dominant and destructive ideas of the culture today. Right now with part two. But under no circumstance can they both be right, all right? Uh, if God exists, maybe it's an open question, but uh, he's either a personal God or not. Maybe an impersonal force like Star Wars or Avatar or whatever, you know. So if it turns out that God is a personal God, well, then the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims are right in that point, and the Hindus are wrong in that. If it turns out that God is a force, then the Hindus are right about that, and the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims are wrong. But under no circumstance can they both be right. Is that making sense to you? When you die... Maybe you go to heaven or hell. Maybe you get reincarnated. Maybe you lie in the grave, but you can't do them all at the same time. You see what I'm saying? It's just math. It's not bigotry. Somebody's wrong. In fact, it's not just somebody's wrong. Most people are wrong. Maybe I'm the one who's wrong. I was willing to say that for the sake of discussion. But we can't, we can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. Now, there's my argument. I'm going to tell you something. That's a good argument. And then you cut to commercial. Then first, contestant is up, you know, against Mr. Kokel, and he was a Sikh, which is a religious order from India. The gentlemen wear the turbans. He was a, um, actually a barrister from Toronto, a lawyer, right? He was really nice to me in the green room, okay? But now the fills are rolling, you know, it's just a different thing. I understand that. Okay, fine. So Valerie says, well, what do you think of what Mr. Kokel said? And he said, well, if Mr. Kokel thinks he won the lottery, good for him. Well, was he talking about my argument? No. Here's what he'd done. He'd gone to the internet. He went to our webpage, str.org, by the way, str.org, and he found some things that I'd written, and he knows I'm a Christian, and Christians think they're right, and that's the guy who won the lottery. Good for you, lucky man. You won the lottery, right? He's not addressing my issue, right? He's, not He's coming after me. Now, he did it a little passive-aggressive to start out, but he wasn't passive for long. And he got started. I mean, he got so annoyed at me. He's out of the chair shaking paper at my face, Valerie Pringle, if you see the video, and I think it's on the YouTube, Valerie's got to kind of push him down in the chair twice because he's so mad at me. You know, he says, you're the kind of person who calls, causes wars. You know, he's the guy coming out of his chair, right? <laughs> this kind of thing happens all the time. I'm just telling you. And some of you maybe noticed this. Okay, then they had a, a Hindu pastor come up and a, a woman from the United Church of Canada. She was a pastor there, and they were all pluralists, and they were all coming after me. And it's interesting, before too, very, very long, certain words started creeping into the conversation. Words like narrow-minded, bigot, arrogant, intolerant. Look, if I'm being arrogant, you know, shame on me. But that wasn't what was going on. They were coming after me because of my views as a Christian. Now, were they answering my argument? No, they were fulfilling my prophecy. Okay? 
Now, what I want you to see here in this circumstance is these are the tolerant, neutral crowd. There they were, all three of them. And what were they doing? They're beating me up in front of national TV or doing the best that they could to accomplish that. What happened to the tolerance? It doesn't count that way. It's a one-way street because there's no neutrality. All right? And actually, I said to them, you know, it's interesting what happened in this conversation. We started out talking about pluralism, and somehow the conversation got moved over to Mr. Kokel, my personality, Mr. Kokel's bigoted, Mr. Kokel's narrow-minded, Mr. Kokel's intolerant, Mr. Kokel's mean, I guess is what you're saying. All right, how about if we do this? I actually said this. How about if I just admit that I'm really mean? So I'll agree with you. I'm all those nasty things that you say about me. So then we'll have that settled. Then maybe we can set that aside and get back to talking about pluralism, right? You see the point there. They're name-calling. They're not talking about the issue. They've changed the subject. This happens all the time. I said, in fact, you're objecting to me being a Christian and what Christianity teaches, so I must be wrong. Christianity must be wrong. I mean, that's what I'm getting from them. Well, maybe it is, but if Christianity is wrong, then not all religions are equally true. Therefore, if I'm wrong in the way you're saying that I'm wrong about Christianity, then I'm right about what we're supposed to be talking about here. They didn't get it. One whole hour, they did not get it. Guess who got it? The atheist got it. And he, after we're all done, he's bounds up on the stage, and he is hopping mad, and he's really mad at the Sikh, and he's using language appropriate for an atheist to describe it. I mean, he's just letting go. Nobody is neutral. Anybody who weighs in at all is demonstrating their commitment to some point of view. They are not neutral. And if tolerance depends on neutrality, nobody's neutral, then there is no tolerance on that view. Now, there is an appropriate tolerance, but that's not it. So all I've done so far, I haven't really dealt with relativism. I've just ex defined it, and I've shown you some problems that maybe you didn't see before. Now I want to give an argument against it. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, how do you give an argument that is meant to prove that morality really exists? Well, it's actually not as hard as you think. If you want to prove the existence of something, one of the ways that you prove it is by pointing at it. Do pews exist? Yep. Prove it. There's one. Actually, there's a bunch of them right here. Do people exist? Yeah, open your eyes. There's you know, see how, so one way we demonstrate the existence of something is we point at it. Now, I just gave you an example of pointing at something physical. We also use our language to point at things non-physical. Really? How's that? See how they love one another? Did you follow that? See how they love. You can't see love. But what you do is you observe something that allows you to, you observe something with your physical eyes that allows you to perceive something that is not physical. And we do this all the time. All the time. Oh, how about this? And, and that's because we have a seeing faculty. Philosophers call it intuition, which is a very peculiar kind of thing. I don't mean female intuition. I believe in that, ladies, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about a skill that you gain because you've done something for a long time. I'm talking about something built in that you don't learn. It's part of you. So if I were to say to you, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is... How did you know that? Every audience that I ask gets that right. 
How did you know that? I learned it in philosophy class. No, you didn't. If you understand the statement, all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, you can just, watch this, see that the statement, Socrates is mortal, follows from that. Now, that's called a rational intuition. And by the way, if you said that to somebody else and they said, I, I don't get that, what are you going to do with them? You have no place to go. I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to figure they didn't really understand. So you're going to say, okay, let me do it again slowly. All men are mortal. Okay. Socrates is man. Got it. I'm with you, man. Socrates is mortal. I don't see that. You're dead in the water. You see? So what I'm saying is when it comes to these kind of things, you either see it or you don't. And if you got all your faculties working, you're going to see it. And if you don't see it, there's something wrong with you. I'm not putting people down. I'm just saying this is the way this kind of thing works. Now, I gave you examples of a rational intuition. I think their aesthetic is intuitions. These are built in. I think there are moral intuitions as well. Pat was talking about the moral law built into us. So we see this in the Bible. But you don't need a Bible to know this. All you have to do is listen to people. People are always pointing at moral things with their language. Now, if it turns out that morality out there is not real, and it's not insulin, but it's ice cream kind of thing, it's just in here and we make it up, then the language that people are using to point to morality out there is not pointing to anything. That means their language is meaningless. But it turns out there, our language is filled with expressions of morality. We saw it even in Faye Waddleton. She couldn't avoid it. When she's arguing for relativism, she is saying, and that's unfair. Really? Where'd you get that? Well, it's supposed to be fair. Oh, says who? Your grandma? Where'd you, you know, if relativism is true, then wh where are you getting this? Notice how they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. This is a, something that I hope you see tonight that now you're, wow, oh, I never saw that before, and you're going to see it a lot when people converse because people do this all the time. When I was, a, before a Christian, I was a marching, I was a relativist because that was, that was great. Hey, look, at when you're a young man and you're in college, relativism is really convenient. Okay, enough said, all right? Virtue, religion, no, no, that's just a little, that's inconvenient, you know? But I was marching against the war in Vietnam because it was an immoral war. That's what I said. See the contradiction, okay? This kind of contradictory thing happens all the time, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a handful of fatal flaws of relativism. Now, just so you know, I've written a book on this. I wrote a book on tactics, yes, and I'll talk about this. The title of the book is Tactics. Okay, so I wrote a book on relativism, and the title of the book is, guess what? Relativism, yeah. <laughs> kind of keep things simple. Feet firmly planted in midair is the subtitle of that, and and you're going to see why. And in there, I have a chapter called Relativism, Seven Fatal Flaws. I can't give you all those flaws. I'm just going to give you a couple of them because they're all kin to each other in a particular way. And that is they are trading on people talking about things out there that seem to reveal their own confidence that there are objective moral principles out there. And if there aren't, if relativism is true, then they're talking nonsense. Everybody's talking nonsense is what it amounts to. Okay. So let me give you the first most important one, the single best evidence that moral truth exists, okay? Let me tell you, lead up to this, to tell you an incredible experience I had. 1982, I lived for seven months in Thailand, and I worked in a refugee camp called Sakeo, and my job was to feed 18,250 people every single day, 
on my job. I warehoused all the food. I ordered it. I had it distributed so this people in this small city could stay alive. These were Cambodian refugees who had survived the Cambodian Holocaust of 1976 to 1979. If you know anything about that history, it was a gruesome pogrom on the entire country visited upon them by red Cambodians or Khmer Rouge led by a man named Pol Pot. And during the Pol Pot regime, they emptied the cities and they went to the country, went to a, a rice standard. And as a result, for those four years of Khmer Rouge occupation, starvation was commonplace. People ate snakes, they ate bugs, they ate bark from the tree. Some women even ate their own children. Executions were routine. People were tied to trees. And if you go to Southeast Asia and you order a Coke anywhere, they're going to give you a blue plastic bag with ice in it, and they're going to pour the Coke in it and put a straw in it, and then they give you the blue plastic bag. These blue plastic bags are everywhere in Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. I mean, they're all over the place, but the Khmer Rouge used them to execute people. They would put them on their head after they tied them to the tree, and they would tie a knot around it, and they would suffocate. And while they were in the throes of death, they would eviscerate them, and as their guts spilled out, they grabbed their liver, and they'd eat their liver while they were still alive. This was the Khmer Rouge. Infants were tossed into the air and impaled on bayonets. Then the infants were pitched into a big vat of water, and they're allowed to rot there, and they called this the baby broth that they made people drink. By the time the Vietnamese evaded and the Khmer Rouge Khmer Rouge were forced against the western border of Cambodia, and the Cambodian people flooded across the border into Thailand. Two million people had died. Two million of four million, half the population of the country, according to Time magazine. Bodies were piled in ditches. They were hung from trees. They were thrown into rivers. They were bulldozed into mass graves. Sometimes they were buried alive in bomb craters, and these areas came to be known as the killing fields. These camps were thick with children, and I saw the pictures that 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old children, I have copies of them that children drew in remembrance of the executions, and they are covered with red color, representing all the blood as people are beaten, beaten to death with bamboo posts. They didn't use bullets. They just crushed their skulls. And the children right there, why, why were so many people destroyed? It's enough to make you weep. Why do we weep? What's up with that? Why are we responding that way? Oh, well, that, you're, that's just emotion. Really? It is emotion, but why? What's going on there? When I explain these kinds of things, this is what causes atheists to say, how could your God allow so much, what? Evil in the world. What do you mean evil in the world? What's up with that? What's he, what do they mean? That stuff is wicked. You notice when people make that assessment, I can ask a question. When you say that's evil, when you say that's wicked, just tell me, are you talking about the thing or are you talking about yourself? You know, when I say Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious, I'm talking about myself, right? I'm talking about what I like and what I prefer. I'm not talking about the ice cream. It's regarding the ice cream, but I'm describing my own likes and dislikes. So when you say that's wicked and that's evil, are you talking about the actions or are you talking about yourself? Well, look at if relativism is true, you're just talking about yourself, that's all. And those things that I just described and a host of other things like it are not evil. They are not wicked. They're just stuff. You don't like it. Maybe you wouldn't do it. The Khmer Rouge loved it. It was sport to them. So who's to say? 
One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. That's all you can say. But you know what? When people complain about that kind of stuff and they say wicked and evil and all that, I guarantee you, I know they are referring to the action. This is why the problem of evil is the most ubiquitous argument or complaint against the existence of God, because everybody knows there's trouble in the world. Everybody knows there's a problem, and they complain about it. Okay, great. I get it. But if there's a problem of evil in the world, then evil is in the world. It's insulin. It's not ice cream. You see what I'm talking about here? If relativism is true, which is what people want to act like, then there's no evil in the world. There are just people who have different opinions about things, and that's all you can say about it. But if we countenance these kinds of things and we conclude that was wrong, some things just ain't right, you know, then relativism is false. And how can I say relativism is false? Because everybody can see with this capacity we have, this moral sight, we can see the wickedness that's inherent in the behavior. So the biggest evidence against moral relativism is the problem of evil, and the problem of evil is sooner or later on the lips of everyone, and they're not talking about themselves, even if they're relativists, they're talking about the action. So in a certain sense, everybody knows better. They're fooling themselves, that's all. Now the rest of the flaws are kind of like it. The second flaw, the first one is there's no evil in the world. But if there is evil in the world, then relativism is false. The second flaw is relativism is true, is that there's no right or wrong. Well, how are you going to say somebody's wrong? That's like saying there's, they're, they're breaking rules in a game that has no rules. Nobody can be right or wrong. And by the way, notice that there's no evil, but there's no good either. <laughs> so that's a problem. If it does seem that some things, maybe not everything that everybody thinks is wrong actually is wrong, but if some things are wrong, then relativism has got to be false. I'm moving quickly here a little bit just over these flaws, but I think you get it. If relativism is true, guess what? No justice, no fairness. What is justice and fairness? It's a virtue. These are virtues that are required of us if we're to be good people. But if there is no good or evil, then virtue and fairness are not required of us. So when somebody says you ought to be fair, okay, says who, your grandma? You know, we're back to that again. If that's just your personal opinion, keep it to yourself. How about this? If relativism is true, then there is no obligation of tolerance. Wow. I thought tolerance was like the chief virtue of relativism. Nobody's right, so you ought to tolerate. Note the language? You ought, I ought to? Actually, if relativism is true, that's not a good reason to be tolerant. It is a good reason not to be tolerant. Because tolerance only applies when there's a moral rule that says we ought to be tolerant. That's over everybody. It's outside of us. That's objectivism. That's not relativism. But notice how the people who want to play the relativism game don't like people to be relativists towards them, right? And we don't teach this to our children, I hope. And I guarantee you, even Faye Waddleton doesn't teach that to her daughter. She doesn't say, Felicia, you know, um, I believe we should be kind to people and we should, kids should go to bed at a certain bedtime and they should do their homework and they should respect their elders. And, but far be it for me to push my morality on you, you get to choose for yourself. Right? I guarantee you Faye Waddleton didn't do that with Felicia. No good parent would do that. So all of these flaws, they all amount to the same thing. All the language that we use to describe 
moral obligations is meaningless. How about rights? All rights are moral claims. You say, I got a right to something? Well, that means I have a moral obligation to acknowledge that right that you have, that entitlement that you have. It's all moral language. Moral relativism is a bankrupt point of view. And the best way to show people this is just to put it back on them. So somebody says, you shouldn't push your morality on me. And I say, why not? Now what? What are they going to say? It's wrong? I had a guy in the same chiropractor's office. His name was Gil. He said that, you know, you, get, you Christians are so judgmental. I said, what's wrong with that? He said, it's wrong to judge. Okay, why are you judging me right now? I, and then it was like hitting him with a two-by-four. He staggered back, and he just, he thought about it for a few moments, and then he said, well, okay. Okay, I guess it's okay to judge. Uh, but you can't push your morality on other people. Once you push your morality on other people, then you're in trouble. So I had a question. I said, Gil, is that your morality? He said, yep. And then I said, you know what's coming. Then why are you what? Pushing your morality on me right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, he makes a couple of false starts. He can't get going, right? And, and he gets real frustrated. And he says, it's not fair. I said, what do you mean it's not fair? Uh, I can't find a way to say it, which it sounds right. He thought I was, I was playing a word trick on him. I said, Gil, it's not a trick. You're doing the very thing you're telling me not to do. Okay? It's self-refuting. Now, I've had conversations more than once like this, and sometimes people will say, wait, wait. Now you got me all confused. <laughs> I said, no, you were confused when you started. I'm just helping you to see that, all right? Okay, now let me cash this out with Jesus. If relativism is false, some form of moral objectivism is true. And if moral objectivism is true, that means there are laws that apply to everybody, and guess what? We know it. And this has explanatory power. I was lecturing at Berkeley a number of years ago, and I got to this point in this talk. I said, there's something I know about everybody in this room you know about yourself, but you don't want other people to know. You got a bad self-image. How do you know that? Everybody does. That is, we look down in our, inside of ourselves, and we see something that we don't like. We know something's wrong in there. It's moral. And we have a feeling about it. When we are aware of our own moral brokenness, there's a feeling we have about it, and that feeling has a name to it. So I asked the audience at Berkeley, I said, what is the word we use to describe the feeling of our own moral brokenness? And I just let it sigh, sit there, and then I waited, and then I heard it. Guilt, 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 guilt. Right. We feel guilty. Why? Why do we feel guilty? Maybe, maybe culture causes it. I mean, we can talk about that. How about this? Maybe... We feel guilty, I said, because we are guilty. Is that in the running? What do you think? But if moral relativism is false, and there are objective moral principles, do you see how that supports? It's got explanatory power. We feel guilty because we are. We've broken those laws. We know it. And then I said to them this, and this is where it all comes home. The answer to guilt is not denial that's relativism. The answer to guilt is forgiveness. The answer to guilt is forgiveness. And I want to ask you something. When I said the answer to guilt is forgiveness, did you feel something happen inside? Did you just feel like, man, that is like water on a thirsty soul? Because forgiveness speaks to the existential problem every human being faces. Deep inside, we know we're broken. Deep inside, we long for reconciliation with God. Now, we're fighting him. 
We don't want to bend the knee, but inside something hungers for that. We look, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. He's the only one can satisfy that need. And I told the audience, and this is where Jesus comes in. And that's our message. Friends, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Our understanding of the world fits the way the world really is. And we have the answer to the existential problem that everyone faces. What do I do with my guilt, which is there because of our sin? And boy, that gets me really turned on. I hope it gets you turned on too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, Pat's books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.